We're turning back to Luke chapter 17 this morning, looking again at verses 1 through 6. Luke 17, 1 through 6. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like the grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Uh, Father, as we think about our relationships with one another, and we think about uh, rebuking a brother or sister in sin and forgiving a brother and sister in Christ in sin. Uh, Father, we get to the very heart of the weakness that we have in our sinful flesh. And Father, we never need more spiritual strength than when we take up the topic of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so, God, I pray that you would strengthen us as a church body uh, through your word this morning and that you would uh, strengthen our relationship with you as uh, we repent of sin in our own life and turn to Christ for forgiveness. Lord, I pray that your word would do its work and would cut deep into our hearts, that you would uh, give us wisdom, that we would all be praying even right now that you would uh, soften our hearts to examine our relationships and in our lives. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, we're going to focus in on verses 3 and 4, where two commands are given to rebuke a brother in sin, and then so that repentance can come about, and then forgiveness that is given, a type of forgiveness that is a never-ending type of forgiveness. Now, if we're to look at this whole passage, one, one of the things we would say is that Jesus is teaching us to take sin seriously. That's what we looked at last week. Our actions can cause someone else to sin. And so, therefore, we need to watch ourselves. In fact, he gives this uh, the shocking illustration that it's better to have a millstone, a huge uh, stone as big as this uh, 
table in the shape of like a donut put around your neck and thrown into the ocean than to cause a brother or sister to sin. Jesus is saying is fighting sin is incredibly important. And so he says, watch yourselves. And then he turns to the relationship, the interpersonal relationships where sin destroys more than any other place in our lives. If you think of Adam and Eve, the moment they sin is the moment you have a broken marriage. Immediately, Adam is saying, kill my wife. Kill my wife. She gave me the fruit. The chapter before, God had told Adam that whoever eats up from that tree will surely die. And he says, it's my wife's fault. You have a broken marriage immediately. And sin destroys relationships between us, our relationship between us and God, and our relationship between our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Jesus is saying that we must take sin seriously. Because of that, sin is against you. It's at war against your soul and it lives inside of you. Sin is against every relationship you have. Sin wants to control and have mastery over you. When you become a Christian, sin no longer is your master. Christ has broken that slavery to sin. Although sin still remains in your flesh, which means that sin wants to have mastery and the Christian needs to fight against it, needs to take it seriously. And so as we think about why in the world would we ever rebuke a brother or sister in sin, that, that, that might sound like the last thing in the world you want to do. It might be because you don't want to be a hypocrite. You know you struggle with sin. Who am I to go talk to my brother or sister in Christ about their sin? I know I've felt that way before. It might be because you don't like conflict. You don't want to have a painful experience in a relationship and would rather deal with the broken relationship, kind of pretend like it doesn't exist. But clearly in our text, he simply says that if your brother sins, rebuke him. Rebuke sounds so harsh. We maybe hear that is hate them, reject them. And that is not what Jesus is saying. In fact, it's the opposite. The rebuke is a rebuke because the relationship is valued. Other times this word rebuke is used, Matthew 16, 21, to help you get a sense of it. 
we read, we see it in a negative sense when Peter wrongly rebuked. Matthew 16, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Peter rebuked Jesus, pulled him aside and said, no, stop it. It won't be. Same word. Or Luke 8.24, the familiar story when the disciples are on the boat and there's a storm. Master, master, we are perishing. In Luke 8.24, he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. What does rebuke mean? Jesus said, stop, stop it. When our brothers and sisters in Christ are in sin, we must say, stop it. Why? Because sin is always against you. Sin leads to death. It always destroys relationships. It mars the glory of God, the very thing you're created for. We must fight sin, and we must love God and our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to say, stop it. But in order for that to happen, there needs to be the category in Christians' lives where they really believe they need their brothers and sisters in Christ to do that for them. That's one of the things in church membership that we say that one of the best things about it is you're specifically asking your brothers in Christ to have free access into your life and say, stop it. If they see maybe some sin you don't see that you're caught in, that is destroying your life. It's, it's, it's protection. It's like entering the safest place when you give people who love you access into your life, but we're afraid to do this because we're afraid every time sin is confronted, the other person's going to say, they don't like me, they hate me, they're picking on me, they're a hypocrite. We're afraid of all those things more than they're afraid of sin itself. And so Jesus is telling us that we must say stop it to our sinning brother and sister in Christ. And if you see in your notes, when we bring up this topic, uh, Luke 17 is just the shortened version of Matthew chapter 18. You, we get much more details and Matthew chapter 18, and although we're only looking at two verses, we're looking at two massively important but complicated commands. It might seem easy on the front end, but there's so many questions to ask it. So the way I set up your notes is, let's ask questions. What does it mean 
to rebuke a sinning brother or sister. It means to stop it. Why should I rebuke a sinning brother or sister? Who should I rebuke? When should I rebuke? How should I do it? Why is it hard for me to do this? We want to ask those questions to this command this morning. And then as we transition to the second part, forgiving our brothers and sisters, we're just merely going to get started this morning and ask the question, what does it mean to forgive and why should I forgive? And then we're really going to get into the nuts and bolts of that next week. All that to say is this is the hardest thing you'll do as a Christian. Nothing will take more spiritual strength than to navigate your relationships as a believer. Nothing is more important to a marriage than having the spiritual power and understanding of what God's Word says about forgiveness and reconciliation and talking honestly about sin in each other's lives. Nothing will be more important for your parenting. Nothing will be more important for your relationship with your friends and brothers and sisters in Christ and neighbors. This strikes at the core of the Mount Everest of the Christian faith. That's why right after this, what do verses 6 and 7 our, our, what does verse 5 say? Increase our faith. They're saying, if you're asking us to do that, you got to give us more than you've given us. All right? So it's not an easy thing. And you might say, well, I'm not a person who struggles with unforgiveness. I would say, well, you, then you've been deceived. You do struggle with unforgiveness. Is there any bitterness in your heart towards anyone? Have you, ever, have you ever experienced being a bitter person? Have you ever been irritated with a person? Do you tend towards isolation and avoiding people and fellowship, maybe especially certain people? Do you say, well, I've never been a people person. My dad wasn't a people person. My grandpa wasn't a people person. That just means your father struggled with forgiveness and your grandpa struggled with forgiveness and so do you. We all struggle with forgiveness because we all struggle with pride and we all struggle with someone sinning against us and having the heart of God towards them when that happens. So what it means to rebuke a sinning brother or sister is to say stop it why should we do this why should i rebuke someone who's sinned against me to restore a relationship between god and them we want them restored to god we want repentance we want them to have fellowship and and forgiveness, and so that our relationship can be fruitful. For God's glory, 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means sin is always an attack against the glory of God. That's why we should do it. Sin brings about death. If you want to know how bad sin is, just watch how rotten it is, how the horror of the Son of God, the perfect man, nailed to the cross, beard ripped out, body lashed open. If you're to ask the question, why? One of the answers is sin. What does it take to pay the price for sin? Look at that Son of God. Look at Him on the cross. Just look what physically happened to Him. And then try to imagine what it means that He's bearing the wrath of God. You never see sin more clearly. You can look at hell and learn something about how bad sin is. But you look at the cross and we see it most clearly. We must take sin seriously and be willing to call a brother or sister to stop. And ultimately, we must do this because God demanded love from us. This is what love does. Someone might say, well, okay, if I know I'm supposed to do it, I know why I'm supposed to do it. I know what it is. How, like, how should I rebuke a sinning brother or sister? So let's think about the attitude and the motive behind it. We're to do it gently, humbly, with a heart ready to forgive, a desire, desiring a restored relationship with the brother or sister, seeking to encourage them to repentance and faith so that they can have a restored relationship with God. Listen to Galatians 6, 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught, trapped in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning they're, they're trapped in the flesh. He's just described what walking in the flesh looks like and what walking in the spirit looks like. So he says, those of you who are walking in the spirit, those of you who are spiritual, here's what you do. You should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You see, that's how, that's the attitude. There's a gentleness. Sometimes we think, boy, it's a bold thing to confront sin. Well, it's a hard thing to confront sin. But when we approach brothers and sisters in Christ in their sin, we come gently. And then he says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I think part of the temptation is to view yourself as, I have this moral high ground. I see your sin, you don't see it. And so I might be harsh because I might fall into the temptation to think I'm better than you. There's a, there's a sense of, of gentleness as we deal with our relationships that have been ruptured and broken. In Ephesians 4, 
Listen to Paul's instruction. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you were called. So, so how are we to walk, Paul? With all humility and gentleness. Know who you are. He just said, I'm a slave of Christ. With humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So those adjectives, humbly, gentle, with patience, with the goal of holding unity in the body. That's how we do it. Or 2 Timothy 2.24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Which means this discussion is going to be kind. It can also be translated easy. You're not a difficult person to hear rebuke from because of your kindness and your love. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see that? This isn't a person that says, uh, it's someone patiently enduring evil, like you sin against me and I say, that's sin, that's wrong, what are you doing? That's not gentle, that's not patiently enduring evil evil that's reactive that's defensive that's saying you hurt me so i'm going to hurt you by showing you your sin and i really don't have love in mind in restoring this relationship but i want to show you that i'm right and you're wrong you see we can rebuke sin in the opposite way with the opposite motives that god has called us to do it listen to titus 3 beginning in verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and for ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, why? Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness by us, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit. So why are we to treat people that way? Because we need to remember who we were and how God saved us, not when we were sinless, but when we were offensive against Him. And so our attitude needs to be an attitude of humility and gentleness and patience and careful in the way we talk to one another. And obviously this works better when there's a relationship. The person knows you love them because you've been kind and 
you have uh, uh, some rapport in the relationship. It always works better when that's the case. Hebrews 5 is interesting. Speaking of the high priest that served Israel, here's, here, here's what the writer of Hebrews says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now listen to this. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for other people. You say, well, how can I be gentle and kind when I'm confronting someone else's sins? It's because you should realize that you have sins yourself. It should be easy for you to show mercy to someone else. It was easy for the high priest to have mercy on the wayward since he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And then James 3, if you want to turn here with me, this is a powerful passage in, in verse 13. We're still at answering the question, how do we do it? What attitude do we do this with? James 3.13 says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in meekness and wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from God, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So let's just stop for a minute. In your relationships, if you see bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. See, if you're quick to say, I don't struggle with unforgiveness, then you might not fight the satanic lie in your heart. You have to see it for what it is. Why? Am I bitter towards that person? Am I jealous of that person? What's going on in my heart? Call it what the scripture calls it. It's demonic. It's unspiritual. It's earthly. Don't justify it. We're going to see why justifying it doesn't work as we look at how Christ has forgiven us. But then here's what he says. But the wisdom from above, not the earthly wisdom, is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Man, if we could just have these fruits in our day and age. Let me read these again. It's pure, peaceable. Are, are, are you a, a person that when you talk to your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're a peacemaker, you're peaceable in the, in the way you discuss things? Are you gentle? Are you open to reason rather than just sure, so sure and proud? Full of mercy, 
and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I love the result. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see why the disciples said, Lord, give me more faith. (laughs) If that's what a spiritual life looks like, give me more faith because that is not natural to my heart. And so if we're in answering the question, how do I rebuke? That's the attitude. Those scriptures describe the motive and attitude of the person's heart. What's the process look like? Well, most of you are probably familiar with Matthew 18, but turn there with me. Jesus lays this out. He says in verse 15 of Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, you should go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the goal of this confrontation is gaining a brother, retaining a relationship, them with God, and them with yourself. That's the goal of Matthew 18. And it says to go alone, which means this isn't a community project. If someone's wronged you, that's not for you and your friends to talk about and to discuss what to do with it. That's not what love does. What love does is loves the person so they don't need to attack them or build a team against them, but actually wants their own goodness, has has their good at stake, and no one would want someone else. If I sin, sin against someone else, I don't want a group of people talking about it amongst themselves without them coming to me. So love goes to gain a brother or sister in Christ that's in sin. And then in verse 16, it says, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now you come with three, two or three loving brothers or sisters in Christ. Best case scenario You choose people that the person you're confronting knows those people love them. Knows they have their best interest at mind. And once again, you go and seek a restored relationship. You're calling them to recognize their sin that has driven a wedge in or or has offended in some way so that they may see it and repent and receive forgiveness from God and forgiveness from you. And then the third step, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And here's where, if the easy example to give is the example of adultery. If a church member decides he's going to commit adultery on his wife, and the first brother or sister in Christ finds out about it, they go to them and they beg for them to repent and come back to their family. 
No. Now two or three brothers or sister in Christ come and plead with them for repentance. That they would repent of their sin, find forgiveness in Christ and reconcile with their spouse and work on the marriage. They say no. Well then, there's a church meeting. And the church is instructed, not with every gory detail, but general information that we have an unrepenting brother or sister in Christ, which ultimately, if they continue on this course, will prove that they never were a believer. And if they remain in rebellion to all their brothers and sisters in Christ, that's when we get the last stage where, again, I say our, uh, in verse 17, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, that doesn't mean you treat them like a dirtbag because you don't treat tax collectors and Gentiles as dirtbags. You treat them as lost sinners. So you don't allow them to have communion and tell them you're part of the brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, you don't do anything that would affirm their uh, any action you would do that would affirm saying you're okay in your sin and you're a believer would be wrong at that point. We're calling them to repentance and trusting Christ. Many churches, however, may have someone in that situation and continue to confirm their confession of Christ. That's not love when the church does that. And so the scripture tells us how to do it. Then the question comes, who should I rebuke? Isn't the church just going to be people rebuking each other all the time? Well, it's important that we always read Scripture in light of Scripture. We have to reconcile one passage with another passage. And the answer to the question, who should I rebuke? The answer is a brother who has offended you or is caught in sin unable to release themselves, have offended you in such a way that your relationship cannot be restored without dealing with it. We don't rebuke every time. In fact, uh, Tim Keller, he wrote an excellent article on forgiveness. Now, I wouldn't necessarily recommend him on every topic, but... Uh, the topic of forgiveness, he has an excellent article. And one of the things he says is he says, but when we do rebuke, our, our, but when do we rebuke? Every time someone wrongs us? And then he points to 1 Peter 4.8 that says, love covers a multitude of sin. Loving Christians cover a lot of sin that doesn't require rebuke. Proverbs 10.12 says hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Imagine Jesus being all omniscient 
rebuking every sin he ever saw in all the people he was with. It would just be, that was a sin. Your heart was wrong. This was that. It was, that's all you would have saw. In fact, it's surprising how gracious he is to his disciples that are so hard-hearted and prideful. He does rebuke them, but that's not the whole of their relationship. So the key is this. Is the relationship been harmed? Or are they caught in a sin that they're not able to get out of? They don't recognize it or there's a hard-heartedness to it is the question. We must not be thin-skinned. We must not be easily offended. We must patiently endure evil. So when someone sins against you in such a way that it has left a lasting offense, which drives a wedge in your relationship with that person, then you must rebuke them and seek repentance from them so that the relationship can be restored and forgiveness given. Why is it hard for me to rebuke a sinning brother or sister in Christ. Listen to what Keller says here. Ultimately, any love that is afraid to confront the beloved is really not love, but a selfish desire to be loved. Well, how is that? Cowardice is always selfish, Keller writes. Cowardice is always selfish. Putting your own needs ahead of the needs of another. A love that says, I'll I'll do anything to keep him or her loving and approving of me is not real love at all. It's not loving the person, it's loving the love you get from the person. True love is willing to confront even to lose the beloved in the short run if there's a chance to help him or her. If we're honest... The reason why we don't confront sin in each other's lives is because we're not secured enough in our identity in Christ and love for them. We're too afraid of a difficult conversation that doesn't go good. And so we tend to avoid it. And he's saying, don't tell yourself that this is love in your heart. I don't want conflict. Rather, see it for what it is. It's a selfish desire to not have anyone think bad of me. In fact, we would rather watch someone burn in destruction than have a difficult conversation with them. That's not love. That's not what we commit to as brothers and sisters in Christ. We might be afraid because we think, You know, I'm a hypocrite. Well, one of the beauties is, is when you confront someone else, you can confess your sin too. In fact, that's a good way. Because there's always two sinners in every relationship and there's always some sin to confess. And we'll get into the details of that next week, but the person confronting ought to lead in repentance and confession and give an open invitation to ask uh, to hear from them how you've contributed yourself 
to the broken relationship. Let's glance into the second charge, forgive your brother or sister in Christ. And really, looking at forgiveness is going to fill out the first part that we've already been through. There's going to be more helpful um, uh, filling of, of what it means to rebuke a brother or sister in Christ in love as we look at forgiveness. And we're not going to get real far in this, but let me begin by uh, reading a, a paragraph that Keller writes in his article. Here's what he says. Here's how he begins. But one could argue that the biblical teaching on forgiveness and reconciliation is so radical that there are no cultures or societies that are in accord with it. <laughs> he's, so get what he's saying. He's saying there's not a culture on the face of the earth that is doing what Christian forgiveness requires. Nowhere. You won't discover a tribe doing it anywhere. It's not natural. And then he points to Bonhoeffer, who says, our community with one another in Christ consists solely in what Christ has done to both of us. Christian brotherhood is a spiritual, not a human reality. In this, it differs from all other communities. <laughs> Meaning, we're all together in this community as sinners saved by grace. And so when we're charged to forgive one another, we're uniquely, we're a unique community that doesn't exist anywhere else on the face of the earth. We actually can do this where others cannot. The church is a place where enemies come together. Unnatural relationships come together. The socioeconomic scale is vast in the church. What we like, our hobbies, what we do, we're all different. The church is a place where it should be total disaster. Get a bunch of people that don't have anything in common, put them in a group and make them do life together. But there can be the greatest love and the greatest unity because it's a supernatural community. You see, when we don't forgive, we don't shine. It's what the world can't understand. What does it mean to forgive? Let's just jump into this question. Forgiveness always requires a debt being paid. Always. In Matthew 6.11, Jesus says, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have our and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not forgive others' trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so, forgiveness is always involves a debt 
being paid. We're asking the question, what is forgiveness? Keller writes, forgiveness means giving up the right to seek payment from the one who harmed you. But it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Here's the illustration. If you come to my house and break a lamp, and the lamp is worth $50, there's only two choices. One is require the other person to pay the price. A debt has to be paid for a broken lamp. The broken lamp represents sin. Sin always requires a debt. It's a brokenness that requires payment. So either that person's going to pay for the lamp, or if I want to forgive it, I'm going to pay for the lamp, or I'm not going to have light in the room. Somebody's going to pay. Sin always requires payment. What's Jesus doing on the cross? He's paying for your sins. Someone's going to pay for the sin. And so forgiveness, if you're going to be the forgiver, that means you're going to be a voluntary sufferer. You're going to say, you hurt me really bad when you did that. And if I want to make you pay, then I'm going to hurt you bad. Or you ruined my reputation among these people, so I'm going to go ruin your reputation among my friends. There's got to be payment. There's got to be payback. But forgiveness says, you hurt me. My reputation might be hurt among these people but I'm not going to pay you back with vengeance. I'm going to eat that. Now, I might suffer for five years to gain trust and reputation if someone else mars it, but someone's going to eat the debt. Either I'm going to deliver the payment. Uh, You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. If that sounds familiar, if, if... If that's the natural reaction you have, I'm going to get them back. I'm going to, you know, my my spouse hurt me. I want them to hurt. I want them to feel pain. You can know you're struggling with unforgiveness. You're You're deciding they're going to pay it. And so when Christ calls us to forgive, he's telling us to voluntarily suffer for the good of another person. So what it means to forgive is to give up your right to pay back. Imagine what a marriage relationship looks like when it's not like a tennis match. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You did this, I'm going to do this. But you have Holy Spirit-led forgiveness willing to eat the payment for the good of another. So when someone is sinned against, something is lost. Someone must suffer, either the offender or the offended. Forgiveness is always costly. You know, we we just barely started defining what forgiveness is and why it's hard.
And let's just peek in to end the sermon into the question, why should I forgive? If you don't know this, you won't have the gasoline to make the forgiveness go. You can know it's right, but what's going to be your, how, where's your spiritual power <coughs> going to come from? In order to, or why should you forgive? The first answer to that is, the offender is always from the same stock as you are. You're from the same realm of humanity. Here's the thing. You can only honestly, as a Christian, hold unforgiveness in your heart when you take the person that you're holding your unforgiveness against and put them in a subhuman class. They're no longer a sinful person. They become a monster. We see this all the time. Just turn on the news. You know, Donald Trump is a monster. And if he's a monster, I don't have to forgive him. I don't have to pray for him. I don't have to care about him. Nancy Pelosi is a monster. She's no longer a human being in the class of sinner. So I don't have to pray for her or work on my bitterness against her because she's in a subhuman class. The first reason why we need to forgive is because we will never be sinned against by a monster. We'll always only and ever be sinned against by another person just like us. And that's why Jesus tells the parable in Matthew 18, verse 21. And here's how we'll end. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? The Jews had in their rules, you forgive him three times after that, you don't have to. Peter's saying, I hear what you're saying. You don't want us to do it three times. You want us to do more than double. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. He's saying your forgiveness needs to be like mine, ultimate. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, uh, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That's millions and millions of dollars. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children that all he had, the payment may be made. Someone's going to pay it. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He ate it. He's out the money. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, patience with me, and I'll pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison and, until he should pay the debt. When his servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, are, are, and they re, I'm sorry, and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? 
And in anger, his master delivered him to to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so that my heavenly father, so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, which means the bitterness inside God cares about. Just saying words, I forgive you and holding bitterness and, and avoiding that person and not wanting to see that person is not forgiveness. And we're required, no matter what, as Christians to make the, the first move. You never believe a pe- pastor when he says he's, this is the last thing. There's one more thing. <laughs> Listen how uh, Keller lays out the responsibility of the Christian. In its most basic and simple form, This teaching is that Christians in community are never to give up on one another, never to give up on a relationship and to never write off another believer. We must never tire of forgiving and repenting and seeking to repair our relationships. Matthew 5, 23 through 26, write that down, tells us we should go to someone if we know they have something against us. So Matthew 5 says, if you know someone's holding something something against you, you go to them. And then he says, Matthew 18 says, we should approach someone if we have something against them. So he says, in short, if any relationship has cooled off or weakened in any way, It's always your move. It doesn't matter who started it. God always holds you responsible to reach out to repair a tattered relationship. A Christian is responsible to begin the process of reconciliation regardless of how the distance and alienation began. Matthew 5 says, I know they have something against me. Well, it's your move. Don't wait for them to bring it. Go to them. Well, I have something against them. Well, it's your move. And so this is hard in community, but we're called to a high calling to have unity and forgiveness and love and to not be satisfied with the relationship that's not just not fighting, but it's just cool. It's just not warm. We can't be satisfied with that as Christians. And so if you're like me, I say, Lord, how am I going to do this? Give me more faith. Christ's answer is you have enough. The faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. If Christ has forgiven you, you have the fuel. Do you know what Jesus did for you? You're a sinner. You can't save yourself. You can't pay your own debt. And Jesus came to pay the debt in your place, to go to the cross Bear the wrath of God. Somebody's got to take the wrath for the sin. Sin always requires payment. And Jesus did that for you, a sinner. So yes, you can turn to a fellow brother or sister in Christ and offer forgiveness. And we'll dive much deeper next week into how this actually looks in practice. Father, we thank you for the forgiveness you've shown us. And Lord, we pray for Holy Spirit power and grace. Father, I pray that we would lean into each other so much so that 
people would feel welcome to come uh, talk to us, even about our own life. Lord, I know I can easily offend somebody, and I do it often. And Father, I never want to cause someone else to sin. So Father, give me the humility and the type of kindness that would invite correction. And Father, I pray that for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.